This is the Down to South London podcast, where experienced investor Jeroen Hopper talks to real investors south of the river. Lots of people say that you can't make good investments in London. Jeroen will talk to real people who are. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Down to South London. My name is Jeroen Hopper. I'm your host. And today I'm joined by Ahmed Khan, who runs serviced accommodation units in South London, of course. So, Here's Ahmed, he's just going to introduce himself and tell us a bit more about what he's been doing. Yeah, just to give you a bit of a background, so I started a couple of years ago straight after university and I basically, I didn't want to get a job straight out of university, so I needed a strategy which could make money in the short term uh, and bring cash flow pretty, pretty fast. Because see, we had a conversation earlier, which is property is great if you're going to do this over a long course of time, but how do you make money in the short term, right? How do you start making money straight away? So I essentially started doing rent-to-rent serviced accommodation. You know, the model is pretty simplistic. You rent a property for two or three years and then rent it by the night on Airbnb, booking.com. And it's a, it's a good strategy to get started with, especially because one, it doesn't take a whole bunch of money. And second, you can start making good cash flow very, very fast. You know, you don't need 50, 60,000 pounds to get started and then you make a few hundred pounds a month uh, because that's traditionally what, you know, buy-to-let investors have made. Which is, which is fine because over the course of 10, 20 years, you'll end up making a lot of money. Yeah, that's but right. It's, because when you invest in for the long term, you've got the asset, you've got the capital appreciation, all, all those sorts of and, things. And you've got a bit of cash flow at the same time. But what I find is a lot of people who are in this phase where they're currently in a job and they want to maybe go full-time into property or go full-time into business, what they struggle with is, well, how am I going to replace my income? Because you're suddenly going from 50, 60,000 pounds a year and to get that completely passively from buy to list is possible, but it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a good entry strategy for people to get started with, to be able to build up cash flow very, very fast and Absolutely. get and get to those goals that they're trying to get to. So that's essentially what I've been doing in the last couple of years uh, across Hertfordshire and London as well, by taking on properties for two to three years, renting them by, by the night on Airbnb and Booking.com and uh, going from there really. Okay, awesome. So you've been uh, doing a little bit of a project in South London with your own money as well now, I hear. So I've been watching your LinkedIn updates and your Facebook (laughs) and what have you. Call me a stalker, if you will, but we're we're both in the property investing scene. So I see what you're up to. In a nutshell, you turned a one-bedroom flat into a two-bed. Now, Mm -hmm. why did you decide to do that? And how did you get on with it? When it comes to buying properties, I think buying and doing a properties, right? There's, there's a different level of risk depending on what you're doing. So I don't really have any property experience per se. I've, I've done rent-to-rent service accommodation, but when it comes to property development or, uh, you know, let's just say, quote-unquote, doing properties up, I don't have much experience there. And when you do a project like a one-bed into a two-bed or some of the things you do, which is a three-bed into a four-bed, it's very, very low risk right we don't have any planning risk we don't really have any building risk because they're mainly apartments and it's just internal reconfigurations right so i think it's probably one of the least riskiest ways of adding a lot of value very very fast we don't take any uh planning building any of those sort of big challenges that people take but we still get the uplift 
without spending too much money. Um, so Just for clarity, I didn't mentor Ahmed on how to do this because it is basically exactly what I've been doing for the last three But we've had years. many chats about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah we've had many right. chats about it. I've read like your blogs and stuff. We've had many chats. But it's, it does make sense though, doesn't it? From Yeah, it's, from it's, it's an easy win. It's an easy win. Taking, uh, you know, my take on it is, is sort of vanilla by to let on steroids because you can simply add a room to it. You can get, you know, 33 to 25, 25 33% more rent quite easily by changing from a three to a four or a four to a five. But, but without there. taking the big risk. Exactly, yeah. Because a lot of people, they take a, a planning risk, for example. And mm. if it doesn't pay off, you've dug a massive hole or same with, uh, some sort of development risk mm-hmm. and you suddenly open up the loft and it's a bit messed up or you go into the basement and it's a bit messed up or yeah, yeah. you start knocking things down and you find a whole bunch of issues. That's right. I, a friend of mine recently did one in King's Cross and uh, he bought it w- thinking this is how much it's going to cost but by the time he was done with all the challenges that came out once they stripped the building, it was ridiculous. So I think this is the reason I got into this was it's the easiest and the least riskiest way of making money. Yeah. Could you make more money doing something else potentially, but then this uh, risk and reward thing, right? Absolutely. I would rather take slightly less, but have almost no risk. Absolutely. Whereas a lot of people, they go for this uh, one big shot. And we've seen this in the last few years, right? Where people have taken some massive risk and oh, yeah. Brexit has come around and it hasn't paid off. Yeah. And that's, suddenly that's right. and they've lost a lot of money. They're left with no money and they got investors to pay back. Of and course. suddenly, you know, they're they're not driving around in fancy cars anymore. <laughs> they're out cleaning their own apartments, which they're trying to shift. Because, you know, our model and your model is based on the premise that you buy something slightly cheaper mm-hmm. and then you add a lot of value without spending that much money and without taking the risk. So even if the market was to go down, in my case, I think, I don't know, let's say 10% or something or even more, 2008, the market went down, I think, 16% across the country, like mm-hmm. on average. If it went down 16% tomorrow, I still wouldn't really lose anything by buying slightly cheap, adding a bit of value. You're, it's a very safe bet. That's, That's why I got into it. So we were talking before the recorder started rolling about uh, last year. Now, you referred back to uh, 2008, that the market tanked by 16%. Um, I actually found that 2018 was a very bad year for me because I had quite a number of projects on and I struggled to get the refinance figures that I wanted. Mm -hmm. I mean, one example, I developed a really nice four to five bed conversion, got a refinance figure of 450 on it, so late 2017. And then I did the next one, which completed sort of mid-2018, which was nicer. It was bigger. It was 150 square foot bigger. It had a roof terrace as well. Uh, so I put in for a revalue of 500. It actually got knocked down to 400. Um, how was your experience getting the refinance figures? I mean, how did they compare to your expectations? So, so there's two things. Um, I think one right now, the confidence is just very, very low. Mm. So because... The problem with property, uh, well, not the problem, but the nature of property is that there isn't a set figure for a property, right? It's at the end of the day, when the guy comes around with his clipboard, he will, based on a certain degree, he'll basically say, I think it's worth this. Now, imagine you have 10 comparables, uh, or let's say nine comparables, and three are the low end, three are middle end, and three are top end. I'm finding right now they're basically looking at the bottom three and saying it's worth around that. So confidence is low. Confidence is low. And it's you can't really argue with that, I suppose, because they do have comparables to back that up. Whereas if this was, let's say, 2014 and confidence was very, very high, you'd probably be in that upper threshold. Yes. That's what I'm personally finding. 
The other side of this is that even if you're in the low threshold and the valuation has come out slightly low, both my model and your model is based around the fact that you should be able to hold out for the long term. Oh, absolutely. So we don't have to sell. And you know where big developers go bust is when they have to sell because someone is calling the loan in or um, they have to sell X number of units by a certain date. So let's say in your case, um, you thought it was 500, but it comes out to 400. As long as you're able to hold that property, we know once the market cleans up and the confidence is back, it will go up to 500 or, or probably more in the coming years. So as long as you can hold on to the property, you, again, you don't have much risk. So that's why I kind of like this model, which is I don't have to sell. You know, if I think it's worth 360 and it comes to 320, it, it's annoying, but it's not going to mean that you're going to start losing money or you'll go bust or something. And it teaches us a valuable lesson, I think, about uh, de-risking your property strategy because a lot of people, they go for you know all eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. They chase that big fish and they stick all their money into one development that you know either you know, breaks them or makes them. Yep. Um, I think what I like about what you were saying, uh, and this comes back to what you were saying earlier about uh, sort of de-risking, you've got the asset, Creation, you buying properties, but you're also uh, doing rent to rent, rent to service accommodation mm-hmm. for the cash flow element of things. So uh, I'm actually doing a very similar thing uh, right. with my business partner Daniel. So we have a couple of uh, rent to SA units in the Docklands. Uh, I know it's north of the river. I shouldn't really mention that in this podcast. <laughs> I shouldn't mention anything <laughs> south of the river. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's it's yeah. You, know, you can see it from south of the river. Put it that way. But we we also do uh, management agreements for right. landlords. So rent to rent basically and right. uh, just just. To, call it that let's give it a label and um, I, I think that uh, just like what you're doing really de-risks you know if you're not getting so much money back mm-hmm. from a development from a refinance or whatever you're still getting cash flow regular cash flow from other sources because imagine if you are that developer and you are dependent on you know the sale of I don't know 50 units or mm-hmm. whatever that's a big problem if you can't shift those or if you can't shift you know 20 out of the 50 or whatever you know that there's a profit margin so you've broken even and then you're sitting on these units what do you do then you haven't got a secondary strategy have you I, I think that's part of the problem with big developments right which is and I'm not against them but I do think it's a high risk high reward strategy yeah because if it pays off you will make a lot of money but if something like 2016 happens and Brexit comes around you do have a massive issue and um, you know, there's so many building companies and so many developers right now who are struggling purely because of that. Which is, what do you do if you can't sell it? Mm-hmm. It's like you, where, how do you fall back? Now, one of the things we do is the reason we take these cheaper properties again is relative, right? What's cheap and what's not, but they still cash flow. Whereas a lot of properties in London, you can buy a one-bedroom property, which is a new build, but it doesn't really cash flow once yeah. you account for service charges and those sort of things. I mean, can you even get a buy-to-let mortgage on 75% loan to that? Probably not. Probably not, because the, stack up the numbers would never stack up. Exactly. The numbers would never work. So a lot of the stuff we look at, even if you, let's say someone doesn't have the intention to hold, someone's not interested in the property management and waiting years to make their money and all that sort of stuff, I think they should still have the plan B that does it work as a hold, because if you have to hold out for a couple of years or two, three years while the market recovers, at least you'll still make money and you don't lose any money in the process. Whereas a lot of people, they take properties on, which if they buy and sell will make money. But what happens if you can't sell? It's like, where, where does that go? You're not going to get a mortgage on it, I suppose, if the numbers don't add up. 
Or you'll get a mortgage at like a really low loan to value. That's it. Yeah. So you have to leave more money in the deal. So actually, you're you're, you're losing money because then there's the opportunity cost of, of that money. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and if you and if that was investor money which you owe to someone else, which you had borrowed to maybe do the project in the first place, and now they want their money back. Uh oh. <laughs> then it's you, you have a whole host of issues. So I think it comes down to how do you make how how do you get the highest return with the least amount of risk. So it's, I think this strategy is the highest return risk adjusted. Because yeah, yeah I'd, I'd probably agree with you on that. Um, how have you found uh, finding new opportunities? Because one of the things that I've come across is um, I, I get opportunities like this thrown my way yep. an awful lot. And I pick them to pieces. And the one biggest thing that is a hurdle for me for these properties is the um, level of private ownership in a block. Now, I had right. one. I went to visit it. It was a beautiful block, really nice. Went in. It was, you know, ripe for redevelopment, this property. And it was a two-bed in Deptford. It was on the market. Uh, the guy won 230 for it. And uh, the agent told me, well, if he doesn't get 230, he's just going to chance it in auction. I said, all right, well, let me do some due diligence. 230 sounds like a steal, right? Mm. Normally 280, mm. 275-ish for a two-bed around there. Um, so 230 was a really, really good deal. Went back, downloaded the, uh, the title deeds and what have you. Turned out, out of 22 flats in the block, again, low rise, so only four stories, two duplexes on right. top of each other, a row of 11. It was the only private, private. one in the block, private believe it or not. So it's completely unmortgageable. I'm like, well, I can't do anything with that. And lo and behold, he did go to auction. He didn't attract any bids whatsoever. So right. clearly I'm not alone in thinking it's a bit of a dud investment. Even yeah. A private. I mean, yeah, for cash, maybe 150 Yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, um, just to- I mean, a lot of the stuff that we bought, it seems to be around this, this 45 55% uh, private ownership mark, if mm-hmm. not slightly more. So I haven't really come across that instance where there's only been one out of twenty-two. I mean, that is which, an extreme example because but. that's about that's about four percent or something. Yeah, around four percent. We've kind of been around this forty-fifty, and they're generally zone one properties. Mm-hmm. So it's been okay from that perspective because I think the location also matters, uh, as well yeah. as you know the private ownership. So it's been okay. Uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> <For> <laughs> fingers now, crossed. For, because you know, property there should be everything should be crossed. <laughs> is, is confidence high? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But uh, I haven't had a case where it's been one. I have had cases where there was a property in Islington, which had the whole you know deck access, and yet there was no lift, and it was like the property was on like the seventh floor or something. It was oh, just wow. very a lot high. Of stairs, yeah. yeah, a lot of stairs, and even the stairs were like like these steel type of things. Oh yeah. So uh, I don't know if you've ever got a mortgage or not. I don't know. Um, but a lot of the other stuff, for example, we've got one not too far from here in London Bridge, which is on the second floor. I think half the building is private, half is council, but mm-hmm. it's it's about three minutes from the shard. Oh, wow. So I think it should be okay, that one. That's a stunning location, yeah. You can actually, it's got a view to the shard from the bedrooms and oh, the living wow. rooms and all That's... that sort of stuff. And it's ex-council. A lot of people shy away from ex-council, I feel. But I always say there's a difference between an ex-council property and council estate, mm. right? I like properties like the one which is in London Bridge, which is a whole bunch of private development and there is one council building or a couple of council buildings within a private area. Yeah, sure. So it's so, just a bomb site from the war. like an yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Like I said, this is like, you know, three or four minutes from the shard. Yeah. So the location is amazing. Yeah, can't beat it. Can't beat it, right? But at the same time, I feel like a lot of people shy away from the ex-councils because, I don't know, maybe there is some sort of perception 
that I wouldn't want to be there. I have no idea. Yeah, no, I wouldn't want to invest true. there. And, and I think, but um, the cash flow, like you said about big estates and things, people are still put off by that. Yeah, but the cash flow is. Oh, I think you should look at the numbers, right? I, I look at the numbers all day long, and I love these ex-local properties. Yeah, I yeah. Absolutely love because them. they're again from a from a conversion point of view, they're so much bigger and they have so Definitely. much more space. Whereas a lot of the private one-bedroom flats, we tried this in the past. This is what we started off looking at uh, the private one beds. Mm-hmm. But the issue is, it's they're very very small. You know, private one bed is about thirty-eight square meters around that sort of mm-hmm. ballpark. Whereas some of the ex-councils. 50, 51, 52, yeah, around that sort of mark. They're, they're much, much bigger. How do you find that the bigger size impacts on the prices that you can charge on service accommodation like per, the, per night? Does that have an impact? Uh, I don't think it has a massive in- impact from a service accommodation point of view because largely people are booking by the number of rooms. So even if you have smaller properties, as long as it has a double bed, or has two singles, it's still considered a room. Uh, I've, you know, I had a property in Paddington which was on a rent-to-rent basis where the rooms were tiny because it was a one bed which someone had converted into a two bed, but the rooms were very, very small. But no one ever complained because with service accommodation, a lot of people are there for two or three nights, or let's say four or five nights, and as long as you know they're not exactly gonna move into the property, right? They're not gonna take all their stuff out and True, hang up case, the pictures and. Those sort of things. It's literally a case of moving a suitcase in. So I think there's enough space for that. Whereas obviously, if you were going to live in the property yourself, then you have maybe like a desk and all those sort of things, and you might have to be aware of. But um, not from a service accommodation point of view. I think people are there for a few nights at a time, and as long as they've got the number of rooms, um, it's never been an issue. Sure thing. So because you are buying with service accommodation in mind, I'm guessing that it being a good location is much more important to you. So um, when I say good location, uh, you mentioned London Bridge and you mentioned Paddington. I mean, that was a rent to rent, but Mm -hmm. um, your most recent purchase was as far out as Battersea. And I say far out. Um, You're the service accommodation expert. You're very, uh, very experienced in that sector. And you also give training in that Mm -hmm. sector. Um, so that makes you, quote unquote, an expert, shall we say? Um, so, in your uh, quote unquote expert opinion, uh, what bearing does uh, centralness have on the, the the price per night? Okay, so even though Battersea is slightly further out, Battersea is still a pretty good location, I guess, from a service accommodation point of view, because there's a lot of work going on there uh, with the power station and all those sort of things. We've got a guest right now who is in there for six months. It's uh, it's one of the tunneling companies who have a project there for six months. So they've uh, paid a lot more than what a normal EST would be for a course of six months, purely because of project work. So I think I, I don't necessarily rule a location out if it's slightly further away. It's just a case of who would be coming there. So we do a lot of stuff in Hertfordshire, and you know they're not big towns, but there's a lot of industry there. So uh, it's just a case of working out who would potentially be there. So now when it comes to the more central you are, I think, you know, especially with London, because it's such a big tourist attraction, the closer you get to the center, the rates do go up. <clears throat> because you're, it's central London, the transport links are amazing. Everyone, every, mainly people who come to London, they come for central London, zone one primarily, right? Sure. They, all the tourist attractions are in central London, all those sort of things. So I think it's, London is kind of like a big city, like um, let's just say Barcelona, Paris, that the closer you are to the center, where everyone wants to be, the prices are generally higher. 
Whereas the same might not necessarily be true for some smaller towns and cities where people might not necessarily come for the center. In Stevenage, for example, a lot of my properties are in the center, but people don't necessarily come for Stevenage town center. There's, you know, there's, they don't actively come for that reason. The reason prices are higher slightly is because it's closer to the train station. So it's easily accessible to London and those sort of things and you, you don't have to get a taxi. But now let's say you're in somewhere like Windsor. Now, if you're in Windsor and there isn't, I guess, suppose a main center, um, as long as it's a good accommodation and a lot of people come by cars and those sort of things, then you should be fine. The center itself doesn't really attract anything. Maybe like a particular tourist attraction, but not the center itself. But London, I, I think, is primarily because the center is the tourist attraction or the tourist hub, so it just drives much higher rates. And then, of course, if you go to even within the center, there's a lot of variation, right? Because you have um, something like Mayfair, and then you have something like Kilburn, which <laughs> I guess Kilburn is still zone two, so still fairly, fairly central. I think from Kilburn to St. John's Wood is only about three or four stops. So fairly central. I mean, it's not too far, but it's like worlds apart going from Mayfair to Kilburn. Oh, yeah. yeah. So... But as a rule of thumb in London, the closer you are to the centre, the rates do tend to go up. They and do tend to go up. How do you find that correlation with um, either property acquisition price or the guaranteed rent that you'd have to offer to Mr. Landlord if you're taking it on a rent-to-rent basis? Do you find that uh, if you take on something more central, do you find your margin higher or do you kind of see that as, well, it's kind of built in, but I'll still buy more central or get a more central property simply because I've got a better chance of getting a better occupancy yeah so you're you're banking on a higher, higher occupancy like you just said it's like um uh, you know because the central the closer you get to the center the rents tend to be higher so as the rents tend to increase that also means that your break-even point is slightly higher at times but at the same time you know there's more demand in central london so you're banking on a higher occupancy so if you go up north, you might break even around 45%. Oh, wow. 45% occupancy, you might break even. Maybe slightly less as well. But central London, what we find is, is generally around the 55, 57%. That is when you break even. But now, you know, we've got a property in Victoria. Summer months, you can charge about £220 a night. Now, let's say you've broken even. Every night after that, you're making £220 almost profit, Right. So five more nights is suddenly £1,100. Mm. So it's a case of you're breaking even at a slightly higher point, but every night incremental after that, you're making a lot more money than you potentially would do up north where your night rates are about 60, 70, 80 pounds. Sure. So yeah, I think the, the break even is higher, but because you're banking on the higher demand at the same time, it sort of makes up for that. Makes up for that. And how do you find that that uh, counterbalances with the winter months? Because in the winter, you tend to have higher voids, don't you, mm -hmm. in service accommodation. Um, December being a bit of an anomaly. Now, I, I do service accommodation as well, and I've run it on, on various properties. And I found uh, that December was actually quite a good month, funnily enough. How do you did, you, did you have a lot of tourists coming for maybe the fireworks and those sort of things and Christmas and stuff? I, I, a lot of Christmas bookings and the yeah. Christmas bookings were pretty juicy from memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think Dece December, especially the closer you get to late later part of December, probably gets better. Absolutely. Purely maybe families vis uh, visiting and Christmas and New Year's, is obviously with the London fireworks being a famous thing. Mm. So I think it does pick up. But a lot of our stuff is based on corporate clients. 
So we do the airbnbmbooking.com and we do a lot of that. But we also do a lot of uh, corporate booking, insurance bookings, relocation bookings. Um, I was just checking my email now, which was a month and a half booking for a corporate client in Stevenage. So we do a lot of that in London, outside of London as well. And you know, if you get a booking for, let's say, a couple of months, suddenly you don't have to worry about the winter months because they've kind of been taken care of by that one booking. Absolutely. So the largest one I've had in London was three months in Maida Vale for £250 a night. Oh, wow. And that was about £20,000 from one booking. Wow. That's, so, that's an insane amount of money. And then that's, that's pretty much what you want, right? Which yeah. is someone in there for a few months at a time and uh, paying you by the night. Absolutely. The, you want the, service accommodation <laughs> money at a full let occupancy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the longest booking I've had, someone paying me by the night. Now, my rent was, I think, £950 a month. They paid me £120 a night. Oh, wow. So, which is a pretty good rate. It's like 3600 a month, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Then you do less your bills and yeah, those sort yeah. of things. But Caught three grand, so is that? Yeah, but it, I think the net profit was over like about two grand or something. Oh, my God. Around that's, that sort of month. Amazing. And they stayed for 11 months. Wow. <laughs> it was, that, that's it was pretty sweet. Because, see, what happens is they don't book for 11 months, right? They book for one month or two months. But a lot of these guys, they're contractors, they're on project work. And the issue with project work is you never know when it's going to finish. Uh, and because it's a rolling contract, right? So it might finish in two months, it might finish in two years. But that is the issue with project work, which is there is this whole uncertainty as to when it's going to finish. Now, he didn't know he was going to be there for 11 months day one. He thought he was going to be there for maybe three, four, five, but the project kept going on and on and on. At the same time, we've had someone say, I'll book for two months, and they've left a month early. They still had to pay the notice period and all those sort of things. Um, but the project finished early. So, okay. you know, but if you have your, my cancellation policy is 30 days. So I've had people cancel, they still have to pay for the next month wow. because of the 30 day cancellation policy, which is fine for me because I can then rent it out to someone else and make double the money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can do that on service accommodation. You'd struggle to do that on a, on a residential AST. Yeah, yeah, um, service accommodation is easy. It's yeah. different, isn't it? I, I had a guest once, he booked for 25 nights, I think it was 2,700 pounds or something. She turned up and she started asking when the property was painted and it was a new build. So obviously it was painted relatively, I don't know, maybe six months ago or something. Mm -hmm. And apparently she was allergic to the fumes or in, in the paint. Oh, wow. But she, she didn't ask that before she booked. And you could tell it was a brand new property yeah. because you can tell what a new kitchen looks like, right? Exactly. And you can, you can tell what a new bathroom looks like. You can tell it's a new property. She never bothered asking. She arrived. She refused to stay there, but she still had to pay the 2,700 pounds. Wow. And then obviously we could then rent the property out again and make double the money and that was a four grand profit or something in that wow. one <laughs> That's a good win for service accommodation. <laughs> that, was, that was a good month. You all, this reminds me of this whole, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's something called mean rent in uh, in letting. So if you if you have a tenant who doesn't move out, say they, they're due to move out on the 15th or whatever, and you've got a new tenant lined up for the 16th, because that's how it works yeah, in London, yeah, you don't often have voids, or, well, I don't at least, uh, if they refuse to move out and you, you've signed a new tenancy with the uh, the, the, the new, the new one, tenant, yeah. you're allowed to charge the old tenant what's called mean rent, which is basically like a pain in the ass fee for like causing this big ruckus because now you've got a tenant. A delay, yeah, you've got a delay. So, 
So yeah, it's it's double rent basically. So they're paying, you know, their rents. And then that's less less legally binding. That's or? that's that's a legal thing. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. It's it's not a very well known thing. And to be honest with you, I've only had to threaten it once, and then they're like, oh no no, we are moving out because right. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to end up paying, yeah, yeah, you know, course. double course. or triple rent or whatever the rules are. I've, I've not looked into it. The too, weird but. the weirdest one I had was this might be a bit hard to explain. Someone booked for three months for five thousand pounds, right? Five thousand pounds, good three months. Money. Good amount of money. It was a very cheap property. It wasn't one of my normal ones. Sure. The rent was only about six hundred pounds a month, so a very cheap property. Um, three months, five thousand pounds. Now they then cancelled the booking because they had a visa issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so they still had to pay one month rent because of the thirty day cancellation policy. Sure. Gotcha. So they paid about sixteen hundred pounds. They then messaged me saying, "Well, I've actually had my visa resolved. Could I then book again? But it, you know, I don't want to pay the full five grand again. Could you take all the first sixteen hundred? And I said, "Fine, that's fine. I'll take it off." So they booked again for thirty three hundred for three months because I took off the initial sixteen seventeen hundred. Yeah, gotcha. I, I gave that back, right? I didn't give it back, but I took it off. Credit, yeah, yeah, sure. credit, credit. Makes sense. That's yeah, fair, yeah, that's fair, right? They then so they had now booked for three months again for thirty three hundred. They then cancelled again. Again, they cancelled again. So they lost another eleven hundred <laughs> on top of the original seventeen hundred. Which then became two thousand eight hundred. What was the reason this time? Did their grandmother's dog die? They said they die? couldn't get the visa. Oh, what? <laughs> it's funny. You get so many excuses, I, don't you? But he said he sorted it. Yeah. Well, well, exactly. And I, I, did, I personally thought I did the right thing. I was like, fine. I'll let you keep your credit. Yeah. You can book for sixteen hundred pound less. <clears throat> but then he cancelled again. Well, you're keeping the money, obviously. So you lost twenty seven, twenty eight hundred pounds. Wow. From from the doing the same thing again. Wow, that's amazing. Like, it was a guy from Saudi Arabia though, and those guys do like print money. So well, I, yeah, exactly. They, I, they I don't invented think he, the printing press. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he cared, but you you do get a lot of those cases where people do cancel, and it's it's like an extra bonus, I suppose. And I think you have to look at it from a. I I had an issue with this, which is, do I just give the money back, or do I keep it, or you know, because you kind of do feel a bit bad about keeping the money, even though it's a cancellation. But I eventually had to look at it from a business point of view and I said what would I do if I was an employee of this company Mm. and the company policy is a 30 day cancellation if you went to a hotel they wouldn't give your money back if if it's a 30 day cancellation it's a 30 day cancellation right business is business right they understand that same same with a flight if you book a flight by accident they don't good luck (laughs) yeah yeah, good good luck getting your money back so I, I think you kind of sometimes have to look put yourself in an employee situation and not get emotional about the situation because it's your own business, right? Exactly. Which is, what would, what, would, what would I do if I was being paid an hourly rate to do my job? Yeah. And in that case, you wouldn't do any cancellations. Yeah, so exactly. it is it is what it is. Because the boss would come down your neck and ask you to pay for the difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. No, thanks. And, <clears throat> no, and ultimately, it does come out of your own pocket, doesn't it? Of course, it? So, of course. Well, that's funny. That. It's an interesting concept, that whole losing money when you, when you cancel bookings. And um, as you know, I've been a state agent for years and years. Mm. And... And this this actually this discussion came about a while back because of the tenant fee ban. So if you are letting a property, you're not allowed to take a uh, you know a holding holding deposit. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call it a deposit because they ain't got register holding monies. Yep. Shall we say yep. you can't take anything more than a week's rent. Now I used to take a thousand pounds. So to go you know average uh, weekly rent of one of mine is mm-hmm. uh, call it four hundred pounds, right? Um, so I'm taking 400 pounds now instead of a thousand pounds. But in years gone by, I've had people just leave the thousand pounds just because they changed their mind or something, you know. 
you know, they'll, they'll come to me with an excuse of, oh, my grandmother's gardener's dog died or something. I'm like, well, how does that have any bearing on the fact that your landlord still wants you out? Mm-hmm. He's got new terms moving into yours. Uh, you're now moving from a two bed to a three bed because, you know, you're moving here with your mate Jimmy. Like, yeah, that yeah. doesn't change because your, your grandma's gardener's dog died. No, of course. You still need to move house. You've clearly just changed your mind about the place. No, of course, just, yeah. of course. I'll I'll have my money back. Like, no, <laughs> I, I think I think I think that's that's the best approach I've come up with so far, which is acting like as if you're the employee of the company. Yeah, and and not being emotional about the decision, uh, and and just following the procedures as they are. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you made those procedures, yeah, so that you don't get a lot of cancellations, of obviously, course, because of once you've got the booking uh, or the let or of whatever course. it is. You want to make sure that it goes through, come what may, because mm-hmm. actually the cost of remarketing and the chance of you having a void is is quite high, right? Because yeah, it's yeah, closer to the time now. People pre. Oh well, yeah, exactly. I mean, if someone uh, you know on the day cancels, it's, oh, you're it's, never going to fill it again. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. I might fill some of the rooms, and I might not fill some of the rooms, and then obviously I'm out of pocket for those rooms that I don't fill. Exactly. Um, so it just is one of those things, but I think. You know, we all deal with it. Everyone's booked a train ticket or a flight ticket or something, and which yeah. they wanted to cancel. And unfortunately, you can't do much about it. Yeah, exactly. By the end of it, so it's just one of those things. I find even from like a from from like a customer service point of view, like pretending you're an employee just works like a charm. <laughs> you don't get any of the stick. <laughs> no, exactly. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and a lot of people think like, oh, oh that's so mean. You keeping his money or whatever. But you think about it, like. There's zero chance of you reletting it because of the short notice, and you know it's not like money for nothing. You've still had to you know clean the property, get the property. Mm-hmm. You know you've still got all the operational costs. Okay, yeah, yeah not, of course, not the cleaning or whatever, but it, essentially it's not money for old rope, is it? You, it's opportunity. Well, cost. I mean, we have a thirty day cancellation policy. If you want to cancel a booking which was made three months in advance, cancel it. You don't get charged a penny. Exactly. You don't get charged anything, but. Once you're within that 30-day window, I'm going to start losing money if I have to start giving money back. And, you know, so I think there has to be some sort of line, I suppose. But cancel two months before, three months, four months Absolutely. before. It's not, it's not an issue at all. So um, that's how I sort of look at it. So true. Well, listen, we, we talked about the successes of serviced accommodation mm-hmm. and uh, your, your rejigging council flats and, and all that's been very successful. We talked about some of the uh, downsides of property investing. I mentioned the down valuations or what have you. What sort of challenges have you come across and, and perhaps had to overcome over the past year or so? From a, from a service combination point of view or from a, just a property point of view? Just in general property, anything that comes to mind that you think like, well, we've tried something and it miserably failed? Because that, um, that's the one thing that I don't think we hear enough about. You know, it's all good and well as saying, oh, yeah, great, we got a booking, they cancelled, we got to keep the money and we relet it and double rent and yay. Um, but equally so, I know that there's been times that have been very challenging. So why don't you tell us I'll, about I'll that? I'll tell you one, one big challenge with property as a whole. Um, especially nowadays more so than I think it was previously which is that a lot of people don't actually end up doing anything because there is so much confusion um, should I do this well he's saying rent to rent is good he's saying development is good he's saying commercial conversion is good so I think one of the biggest challenges people have is that they don't get started in the first place because there is just so much there whereas I speak to people and they said 15 years ago all you all you did was like a buy to let if you want to buy a flat yeah 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 <laughs> whereas the amount of people I meet today who have no idea where to begin or what to do or uh, well, well is this right for me or am I going in the wrong direction yeah. 
And I think that's probably the biggest challenge most people have, of not having an idea of what to do. And I think most people have to work out what they're trying to achieve and work backwards and find a strategy which sort of aligns with that. Because I find people all the time, which is, um, you know, imagine you've got a compass which, and you're trying to go north. I believe as long as you're, you know, you don't have to be pointed exactly north, but as long as you're, you know, you're going north, you might have to yeah. like turn left and right and kind of go slightly back in yourself. But as long as you know, you're going in the right direction. So I was speaking to someone and they said, I don't know if I want to do rent to rent or if I want to buy a property. And they had a bit of money to play with. And I said, well, why don't you do start doing both? And you'll soon figure out, well, this model works slightly better or that model slightly works better. Because now let's say, assuming you don't lose any money, right? And assuming you did two even average deals, you still made a bit of money. You still got the experience. You still found out what works, what doesn't work, what you like, what you don't like. But at least you're getting clarity. I think a lot of people, the challenge is, well, they don't do anything because they're like, it might be wrong. But with most of property investing, if you do it the right way, you'll still be fine. Uh, you know, if you buy a property, you know it's going to be worth a lot more in 10 years' time. So it might not be the most optimal deal. Now, by the way, I'm assuming you don't lose money because a lot of people end up losing money by doing the things we mentioned right at the start of the podcast. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming you know how not to lose. Don't ever sell at a price less than what you paid yeah, for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. simple. But you know, as you might not do the best deal in the world, like the million dollar deal, but as long as you're moving in the right direction, I think that's what most people should be doing. Um, working out what their goals are, then working backwards to find a strategy which aligns, and then start doing things. And if you change strategies in a year down the line, that's okay. Like, you know, you can always change. You still have the experience and the learning and the context and the network, and you just chop and change and go from there. Like, I was only doing rent to rent for got about two and a bit years and now I've started buying property. It's a it's a pretty smooth transition. I still have contacts in property and those sort of things. But I think that's a big challenge right now. Big um, challenge. And okay. and I think and I think challenges within property, like within a particular uh, strategy, um, you know, for service accommodation you can have a party or, or like a like a yeah. someone using as for, for prostitution and those sort of things. Prostitution? Sorry, I didn't mean that. I meant uh uh, what's like a thing is it prostitution brothel yes yeah. that is prostitution right it is <laughs> yeah, right yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of something else in my head <laughs> but uh, you know it's I was speaking about this earlier I was doing a talk and I mentioned this thing that there is no business opportunity where there isn't some sort of mine right like I've never seen a business opportunity where you walk down the road it's all crystal clear and it's, it's fine like I just made money of course right? there's risk uh, of course yeah. there's risk and I think you have to accept Whatever the strategy is, there has to be, there is some element of risk. Mm -hmm. And then it's a case of, well, who do I know that's currently doing it? Who knows where those mines are? And then avoiding the mines and getting to where you're trying to get to. When I started doing the one beds into two beds, we had a lot of conversations. And I spoke to you about various different things and how to structure things and what to convert, what not to convert, because you had already done it for a few years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same with service combination and all the other strategies. Someone who's done it for a few years, they know where those mines are they're always going to be there I, you, know, you just need to be mindful it doesn't matter if it's an online business if it's an Amazon business you, there's going to be some sort of mine Absolutely. but it's a case of finding someone who knows where they are and who can kind of tell you how to get around them and just follow that course I think that's uh, that, that, yeah, that's pretty wise I think that sums it up I think I think the best learning you can do is from someone who's who's walked the walk before I uh -huh. suppose and, um, and they're happy to share that journey with you so um 
Is there anything that you would like to... Oh, there's one more thing that I want to ask you, actually. Um, as this is a podcast about South London property investing, what's your favorite part of South London? South London? I don't actually know South London that well. Uh, I would say London Bridge. London Bridge? Yeah, okay. I would say London Bridge because the train into Stevenage is quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a straight train. Transport's <laughs> high up on the agenda yeah, for Ahmed yeah. Khan. Okay, everyone. Uh, this was Ahmed Khan at the Down to South London podcast. Uh, see you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud or iTunes. And please do give a five-star review to help me reach others also. Are you looking to invest in London? Why not reach out to me to see how I can help you. See further information at www.jeroenhopper.com.